I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we are your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by TV presenter and horn player extraordinaire Sarah Willis. Her recent international project, Mozart Imambo, is one of the more interesting and inspiring collaborations I've seen in a long time. There is so much to enjoy in this episode, as Sarah guides us through all the details of the music, things we wouldn't know otherwise. How she had to go beyond her classical horn training, learning Cuban dances, a hidden motif, and so much more. Stay with us to the end as we hear the horn like you've never heard it before. Thank you so much, Sarah, for speaking with me. Some of our audience is familiar with your work, but for everyone else, how would you briefly describe yourself and what you do? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really great to talk to you today. My name's Sarah Willis. I play the French horn in the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. And apart from that, I love communicating my passion for classical music to a a wider audience. I love education work, but I also love crazy projects of mixing and matching certain types of music, which is how this project, Mozart e Mambo, came to life. And this Mozart e Mambo is a continuation of what you started actually a few years ago. This is the second album? That's right. Mozart Mambo actually just started out as an album of things that I wanted to put out there, but it's become much more than that. It's now a, a, a big project. We raised money with the first album to help my Havana Lyceum Orchestra buy better instruments because the condition of their instruments in Cuba was really pretty poor, but they still play great. And, uh, and we've just brought out a second album because we realized people actually really wanted to listen to what we were doing, which made us very happy. Well, it's all very exciting. And I think a lot of our audience might not be aware that Cuba has a particular love for Mozart, it seems. And even from reading your liner notes, it sounds like he would have been a great Cuban musician, too. We totally agree with that. Now, I went to Cuba back in 2017 for the first time because I'd fallen in love with Cuban music. I mean, who didn't after the Buena Vista Social Club? And I learned to dance salsa here in Berlin. I mean, classical musicians are are renowned for not being the best dancers. But I discovered salsa and that was really my thing. So I went to Cuba. And the, the, the horn grapevine is quite active. And even the horn players in Cuba had heard that I was coming. So they asked me to do a masterclass. So apart from dancing salsa, I turned up and heard a concert of the Havana Lyceum Orchestra and I was literally blown away at the way they were playing Mozart because who would expect that there would be such fine classical musicians in Cuba? We all know about the the popular music, the Cuban music, but classical music and Mozart, that was really not what I expected. And uh, we started talking and as a horn player, I've always wanted to record the Mozart horn concertos. And I I started saying, you know, we were one night in the bar, you know, as one is surrounded by mojitos and cuba libres. We we had a very animated discussion about what Mozart may have sounded like if he'd come to Cuba. And my Cuban friends said Mozart would have been a great Cuban. And when I asked why, they said, well, because his music is full of dance. It's full of improvising. Now, Mozart, when he gave concerts himself, he would never play what was on the page. He would improvise around it for ages. And the Cubans do exactly the same thing. So that was the dance element, the passion is music, the um, the improvising. But also they said, we know from history that Mozart was actually quite good with the ladies. And the Cub- my Cuban friend said, and we are too. <laughs> <laughs> they even have a statue of Mozart, I think, in Havana. They do. Who would have guessed that? Now, to be honest, it, it looks a little bit like him. I, I think there's a picture of him in, in, in the first uh, album liner notes that we 
that we brought out. And when I passed it and I just thought, I didn't know it was there. And I just thought he looks vaguely familiar. And it's a bit of a strange statue to have in the middle of Havana. So I approached it and I saw it said Wolfang Amadeus Mozart. So in typical Cuban style, <laughs> the name wasn't quite right. They've actually corrected it since then. But for me, it was just a almost like a sign that, that this is what um, I wanted to be doing. And out of that, this crazy project was born. I love it. So on this album, we have Mozart's first and second horn concertos, what's described as the first Cuban horn concerto, and a few other works towards the end that we'll talk about. But just getting into the first work on the album, Mozart's Horn Concerto Number no. 2. I think a lot of elements that I like in this and in the other Mozart will become more evident as we go on. But uh, something I'm wondering, we've talked about in this podcast, um, the modern horn versus the natural horn valves versus no valves. So in Mozart's day when he wrote this, I think in 1783, it was a natural horn, no valves. Does that affect how you interpret or play this today on the modern horn? Or is it just not really even a thought? I think it should be a big influence in how any horn player plays it on a modern horn because we've, you know, we've, we've inherited this way of playing the horn. Mozart wrote it for the natural horn and it's really important to understand how the natural horn would have sounded. Of course, you can put, you know, modern day elements into it and, and some things are a lot easier with the valves. But this way of slurring, this way of playing an E-flat, what an E-flat crook would have felt like when you're playing it and also where the hand stopping would come into place you know they the, the horn players of the, those days had to play the chromatic notes by stopping the note in the bell with their hand which made a quite a nasal sound so I think it's absolutely necessary to go back to our roots and to understand how it would be played and um, I studied it as well on the natural horn I, I'm not particularly good at it but I would encourage any student who was going to play the Mozart horn concertos and actually any sort of music from that time to go back and really study how it would have been played. I think that's very important. That's very interesting. You mentioned the crook. That's that little bit of slide you can take out of a horn and then add another one that's a different length to change the that's key, right? That's right. It, need, it needs about like a, a three-hour podcast to go into explaining exactly what that does, but it changes the pitch. And each crook would give you a different feeling, like the G crook is very small, and so the, the horn parts written in G are quite light and airy. Mozart, the most beautiful crooks, I think, are F and E flat, and Mozart wrote um, the concerto, the three of his concertos in E flat and then the first one that he wrote the number one in D and it meant D is a little bit longer you have to add a little bit more onto it you know it's quite a thing you once you get to the big long crooks your arm can hardly hold the horn it's so far away from you and D is a really a little bit fiddly that was that was the most fiddly of his concertos I discovered that's that's so interesting I lived briefly with a natural horn player and I heard all kinds of sounds coming I from the uh, room <laughs> Mozart was such an operatic composer, and I love how you and the orchestra are really committing to these long, stretching lines. I think it can really be easy in performances of these concertos to have the orchestra kind of be hands-off, you know, the kind of typical flying in for the last rehearsal and then playing a performance, for instance. There's oftentimes, I hear, not so much of a collaboration or a relationship between the soloist and the orchestra, kind of like hands-off wallpaper, but here in this, is very, very different. There's a clear collaboration and relationship between you and this orchestra, and it really comes across when you're all playing together and committing to these long, stretching lines, very aria-like lines in um, this concerto. 
John, you've just made me so happy by saying that because there, there are two things about that. One is that I really feel, and this is what we found on the first album, we got so much feedback from all around the world. You can hear the love and the respect that, that the orchestra and I have for each other. They are literally mi familia cubana, my Cuban family, and I love, love, love working with them. And that is very important. That makes a great collaboration. But the other thing is that I think Mozart, any of his concertos are very similar to his operas and it's it's okay maybe it's one solo role which is what I have but the orchestra is commentating and it's it's a give and take and it's very important for me to make my Mozart on concertos a little bit like an opera um, but be supported and not just accompanied and the orchestra then rises up and has their say and I'm just so happy that you noticed that well it happens a lot I think in this album where it really comes across particularly in this concerto, in the third movement, there's this sudden, beautiful pastoral moment towards the very, very end. And it never struck me like this until I heard this particular, your recording. The strings are droning. It's very pastoral. And then you have all these, as if you're the shepherd maybe on your horn, all these really crisp turns on the horn where it just, everything changes for a moment. And it's so supported. So times it feels like that's kind of just loses all the energy and it falls back before we get to this kind of rounded out end but really it's um it's there quite intensely i know which bit i know you that's the bit you mean and the orchestra is really droning on the bottom there the thing about this orchestra the havana lyceum orchestra they play with all their hearts you know the they are poor musicians in cuba really it's it's a hard life especially right now especially after the pandemic where there was no music live music in cuba and if you take live music away from cubans you're like removing their dna so when they play, they are full of passion. And this second album was a was a, a, pand a lockdown project. You know, I went to, to Cuba in the pandemic time and um, sorry, pandemic, we say that in German, pandemic. <laughs> and uh, and we worked on it and we created it. And so this orchestra doesn't only play with all their heart in that in those times is what it was giving them hope as well. And so they wouldn't just play one note under a soloist. They, they, they would really just think, okay, how are they going to support? What are they going to do here? And that's also a lot to do with their wonderful conductor, Jose Antonio Mendes Padron, who we can now call Pepe because it's a lot easier. Yes. I was just about to say, it sounds like he is a big part of this as well in terms of bringing all of the ideas together because all of this throughout the whole thing, as we'll, as we'll discover, it's very cohesive. Pepe is my musical soulmate, mm. and I was so, so lucky to meet him and to, to experience all this with him. He is such a good conductor that he could really have a career anywhere in the world. I think actually he's conducted at the Kennedy Center as well already um, with great success. But he has chosen to stay in Cuba and to take care of the next generation of, of classical musicians. And I admire that so much, but it's a very special collaboration and one that I don't take for granted. Because I play with a lot of great musicians. I'm lucky that my orchestra is full of them. But to find that person that you really don't even have to speak to about what you want to do, I just feel like he, he catches me at every corner and also tells me when I'm, I'm not doing a good job as well. He'll say, no, come on, Sarah. It's like in, in the romance of the third horn concerto on the first album, people remarked that it was a little bit fast and I actually felt like playing it slowly. And he turned to me and said, Sarah, this is a romance. And in Cuba, our romances are not slow. Mm. <laughs> so he, he gave as good as he got and he's just... Just the most incredible musician, so I'm I'm lucky to have him. 
going to the next piece on here, which described as the first Cuban horn concerto, the Cuban dances for solo horn, strings, and percussion. This is so much fun. I don't think I've ever heard anything really like this. I've never played anything like this. So tell us about <laughs> this, because it's also incredible that it involves like six composers. Yes. Oh gosh, how long have you got? I just love talking about these amazing composers. So I decided for the second album, the first album we had pure Mozart and pure Mambo and then we mixed the two quite a lot. And a follow-up album is always difficult to do, but we knew we had two more horn concertos to record and I just didn't want to mix again so much. I wanted something original and you know, I, when, when we leave this world, we like to leave something great behind. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if the next generation of horn players after me could get to know Cuban music like I do and get to love it? The problem is there is no repertoire written for the horn in Cuba or not a lot. And there was never a horn concerto. So I put out a, a call to young composers saying I needed one composer to write me a horn concerto and I would like it to be a collection of dances and I made a little competition and I got so many great entries that I ended up with six dances by six composers because I just couldn't decide and they all brought something completely unique to the table. It's a little bit like a young Buena Vista social club because these six young composers, they are trying to keep rhythms alive that are disappearing in Cuba. They are folk dances. They are, they are the national dance of Cuba, the danzón, a, a dance that you only do down in Guantanamo called the changui. And the young people of today in Cuba are far more interested in reggaeton, in rap, in rock music. And these traditional dances are sort of getting a little bit forgotten. And the other thing that's incredible about it is that they wrote all the rhythms down. And this is why uh, Wim Wenders in his film, this wonderful Buena Vista Social Club and Rai Kuda, they, they got these old musicians to, to capture what they could do on film. But what these young musicians have done, these young Cubans, they've actually written it down now, which is not easy because if you, if, if you tell a Cuban mambo or changui or guaguanco, which is a rumba, they just know and they play that rhythm. So what these composers have done, they've written it down for people like me, like, you know, this complete foreigners. And, uh, and, and so that percussionists and string players and horn players of the future will be able to play Cuban rhythms not having known much about them before. So I'm so lucky to have these pieces, but I must say it's been the challenge of my life to be able to play them properly. Well, we're going to talk about that because some of these are quite difficult. I mean, starting with the first one, and you're going to have to help me if I mispronounce some of these names or dances or composers. The, the first dance, Tamarindo Scherz Son by Pepe Gavilando and Yazel Munoz. This one is so much fun. It grabs you right away and it sticks with you. It's an earworm. Sometimes I can't get it out of my head. I'm and, so happy about that. <laughs> and I love the titles too because they're interesting. This is a Tamarindo Scherz Son. It's a kind of a play on Scherzo and then Son, the dance. Exactly. And Pepe and Yasel are two, they're quite experimental musicians. And when I asked them to write me um, a son, which is what they actually came up with this theme, but they would put another rhythm underneath it. They would put a changui underneath it. Now, I already had a changui offered from Ernesto, which is how we finished the suite. So I said, guys, I love what you're doing, but I need another dance. They're like, no problem. So they basically changed the clave, the, the meter of the dance. 
and came up with the Scherzon, featuring the famous Cuban dance, the Son. But it's not a typical Son. When you think of Sons, you think of, well, you think of when if it's a social club, you think of dancing, you think of old guys with guitars. These two have made an overture for me. And there's even a couple of bars, which is a nod to my British heritage. If you, if you listen really closely, there's two bars where you hear England. And it's really hard, though. It's such a hard piece to play, but it's a great beginning for the suite. Tell me about this um, little kind of Easter egg, because it sounds like Handel, this little like two-measure moment. You heard moment. it. You heard it's it. It's one of the cleverest uses of Handel I've ever heard, because... <laughs> I mean, it's I'm, so I'm listening. I'm thinking, okay, how how far deep in the background is this little um, Easter egg going to be? And it kind of just pops out of nowhere, and it just totally makes sense. But what I love especially is on the last note, thinking, okay, this little baroque reference. But instead of being baroque at all on the last note, hitting it, you know, slight decay or lifting or something, is not that at all. It's just a huge crescendo that rockets the strings up to that next much higher line that actually sounds a little bit like Borodin to me. But um, it's just one of the most clever little uses of handle I've heard. I love interviewers who know what they're talking about. And thank you so much for listening so close and for noticing that. The funny thing was when they were composing it, I had just received an award from Her Majesty the Queen and um, for, for services to classical music. So it was a really exciting thing to happen. And they just heard about it. And they decided to celebrate that in, in this piece by putting in these couple little bars of, of Handel. And, and it makes me very excited to know that you noticed it. Oh, yes, yes. Now going to the second dance, Danson de la Medianoche. This is by Uniet Lombida. And this is the national dance of Cuba, as I understand it. I, I also get a sense of why they also might say Mozart would have made a great Cuban musician. You gave some great reasons. One that I was kind of picking up as I was listening to this is just these beautiful aria-like lines in the opening concerto, and then long arresting melodies like in this, um, in this dance and in the others. I think there's a lot of crossover in the more kind of melodic aria-like nature, or just the treatment of telling a story from one note to the end. Um, that I find a bit similar too. Absolutely, and that's what Cuban music does. It tells stories through music, through music and dance. And the danson as the national dance of Cuba is a much slower dance. It's old people, older people like to dance it because they don't get so hot and sweaty. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's just a dance which is so beautiful and so noble, but it does tell a story. And I think what Uniet Lombida has done with this, you can hear it's sort of like a dream. It starts off at midnight and, and you almost, someone's dreaming of this beautiful couple dancing the danson and uh, it's very very cleverly done and something very special on this track is that the soloist the other soloist it doesn't really sound like a soloist because it goes all the way through but if you really listen to the guiro the guy playing the guiro is making magic it's like he's speaking with his fingertips and this is Enrique Lazaga who is an original member of the Buena Vista Social Club he's, he's over 80 now and he was so happy we asked him and uh, he was hilarious. He kept telling us stories of the recording of those days. And really, when he stood next to me playing that guiro, well, one, he was incredibly loud. <laughs> it's quite a loud instrument. But he didn't just scrape it. He, he made magic with it. So I felt very privileged to, to have played that with him. And it also is perfect with something you've said a lot about Mozart y Mambo, 
is um, if you can't dance it, you can't play it. Exactly. That was a problem that I actually was was having when I was preparing this music. You know, finally, I, I helped the composers compose it. I mean, they, they came up with the ideas, but I kept suggesting they'd never written for horn at all. I mean, none of them. So I would say, God, that's a little difficult. That's a little easy. Can you do that here? So we had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of cross-continent uh, WhatsApps going on. But uh, when I got the music and started to practice it, I realized my classical tongue, you know, I'm seeing this music and I'm going ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, but it doesn't work at all. So I learned how to sing it. I listened to a lot of danson. I listened to all of them. And then I was with Juniet Lombida, who's an amazing saxophone player himself. He was in Berlin and I said, hey, can you come and listen to me play these things? And he met me at the Philharmonie, which is where we play our hall for the Berlin Philharmonic. One rainy Sunday afternoon, he came into the room and I started playing. He was like, Chica, put that horn down. And we literally, we danced all these numbers and I felt like a total idiot because I was so bad. But he said, if you can't dance it, you can't play it. And he was absolutely right. You need to understand these rhythms and where the, where the clave, where the, where the beat goes to get that right and to, to get my classical tongue away from this sort of Mozart articulation. So it was quite a, it's been quite an adventure to learn these six dances, not only on the horn, but learn to sing them, learn the history of them, but also learn how to dance them. And the danson was the easiest of them all. <laughs> it was the easiest. It got much harder after that. What were some of the other challenges, if there were any, in, in getting this together? Because it does sound, it does sound like a pretty involved project just to get it off the ground. <laughs> involved is an understatement. It, it almost killed me. It's been the project of my life, but it's been really hard to organize. First of all, the logistics of getting my recording team from Berlin over to Havana with the equipment permissions and flights and COVID tests and all the rest. That's already a huge thing. And then getting them all past customs with, you know, expensive microphones and things, it's not easy. Then the recording conditions themselves. Um, we recorded in a church called San Felipe Neri, which is in the middle of Old Havana. And as you probably know, and all your listeners, uh, Havana is not known for being a quiet, peaceful city, <laughs> which is a good thing. Everyone talks loud. Everyone dances loud. Everyone sells things loudly. The animals are loud. So we had to start our recording. It's not a studio, it's a church. So we had to start our recordings at about 10 p.m. when things started getting quiet. But still, you'd get a bread seller or an ice cream seller, Querico Helado, with the most incredibly loud voice right in the middle of my best take. But that wasn't all. We had animals. <laughs> We had animals. We had a cat that wouldn't leave the hole. We had dog fights outside. We had a bird that got trapped and, and yeah, flew around and flapped in the microphones. We also had a resident cricket. And this cricket, I tell you, if I'd found it, it would not be for this world anymore. But we found out where it was. It came out about midnight and it was very vocal. And we found out that if we banged on one wall, it would stop for about 20 minutes. So someone always had to be on cricket duty. And and it'd start, and then we'd be like, oh, and then you'd hear boom, 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 boom. And then it would be quiet. So we knew we had about 20 minutes. And we got it out of most of the recording, but there's still a spot on the recording where you can hear him. Oh, yes. Very difficult. Sounds like, as you said, it almost took your own life trying to get this thing out. The third dance, uh, Guanguanco Sencillo, if I'm saying that right, by Wilma Alba Call. This one... For me, it's kind of a sleeper favorite. It's not that it grows on you, but the opening 
canto, this opening、um, call that you that you have on the horn, and you already brought up some animals. And I was going to say this opening canto from you is a solo, but I don't want to lie because it really is a duet with that cricket that you can hear <laughs> you in the、it. back. Oh yes, you heard it. He's exactly that was exactly where we couldn't shut him up. And usually stuff like that. Also drives me crazy, but here not at all. Because in my imagination, my overactive imagination, I'm thinking, okay, so you have this beautiful calling out. All of your, you're, you're dumping all of your emotions out on stage, and I imagine this cricket is just there nearby, <laughs> as everyone is silent as you know it can be. It's a recording session, and this cricket's wondering why is no one responding. I have to call out to her now. This cricket, I tell you, the thing about the canta, this part where I played the solo, was we recorded that after we recorded the the dance part of the guaguancó, and、um, so the orchestra was allowed to go home because it was about two in the morning. So I had nobody left to bang on the wall. So I only had the recording team in there. Well, their recording studio, which was actually、uh, one of the dressing rooms. And、uh, and there was no one else there, so Mr. Cricket had to, or Mrs. Cricket, whoever it was, there just chirped along. But I think you're right; it was sort of like a, a duetting with nature, and that's what this canta would have been. This calling there, it's either a calling to the gods or calling to the dance. The the guaguancó sencillo means a, a simple guaguancó, and guaguancó is one of the three types of Cuban rumba. And the rumba, this type, was brought over by the slaves by, from Africa. So they would sing quite melancholically about, you know, their life back at home. And this would be picked up by the Cuban rhythms. And this is a wonderful mix of Afro-Cuban style. So I wasn't quite sure who I was calling to, but I feel like, you know, it's quite a holy moment. I mean, a reason why. This one is also a favorite for me, is because it takes about half the movement to feel like. Then we really get into the main part of the dance. There's this long, slow buildup, and in context, especially with the previous dances, it's so worth it. I don't know the impact it has, even though it's just kind of slight the difference before and after. I think, but、um, the buildup is it just makes it so so gratifying to listen to. Wilma Albacal is a very talented composer, and I was so happy to have a, a female composer working on this with me as well, because as you know, horn was never—it、uh, was always quite a male-dominated world, and composers as well. And to find a female talented Cuban composer, I was very happy about that. And she's a choral composer and conductor, and she didn't actually know a lot about guaguancó when I asked her to do that particular dance. So she went and she learned to dance it, she learned to sing it, and she learned all the history about it, which is what I then had to do to be able to play it. But she's very, very clever with the orchestra, and a lot of people on the inside music of the music world have said that's the one that's impressed them the most because of the way she uses the horn and the strings. She's basically used guaguancó is not、um, is not an instrument. Mental, it's 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 more percussive. So you have a singer, you have someone dancing, and you have many different percussion instruments. So she's used the strings as the percussion instrument, and the horn starts with this lyrical calling, but then she turns it into one of the percussion instruments. And by the end, the horn is just going ba 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 ba. And I I got one of my friends to actually play this for me on the conga so that I could understand how he hit it to help me help my tongue hit it. So it was a It was quite a job, but I, I'm glad you enjoyed it because it's really it's a very special piece. It really is, 
And you also said this was the most difficult dance to learn. I'm wondering, was there? Do you remember? Was there like an an actual breakthrough where it finally made sense to you, or is it? Or is it still maybe really difficult? (laughs) Well, it it made sense. Uh, I to sing it really helped, and to to practice it with the percussion really helped me. And they they gave me a groove. They just gave me a a, a guaguanco groove, and they said just play on top of that. So that really helped. But to learn that it's all in the, this one's all in the hips and the knees. So they bend the knees and they sort of sort of twist their legs. And it's also a dance of the guy trying to, you know, get the girl. Um, and it's it, it tells a story and she either, you know, she she lets him in or she doesn't. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's quite, it's a real, really difficult dance for me to learn. It's a beautiful dance to watch, but I, I find that one hard. But singing it really helped me and watching a lot of it as well. Uh, I mean, I have bad knees, so I think I'll set that one No, out. no, that wouldn't be one for <laughs> <No>. you. <laughs> but we, we get to the, the fourth dance, and I think you know what time it is now, Sarah, for the fourth dance. We have to turn the lights down low. Absolutely. Get comfortable. We're, it's like we're going back in time. Isn't this, it uh, gorgeous? It is. Un bolero para Sara, another fun title with your name in there by Jorge Aragon. This one, you also mentioned, well, one, of course, it's beautiful. And it, it's really arresting. And you mentioned you can hear a bit of Mahler influence in the horn writing. Yes, Jorge Aragon is an incredibly talented arranger. And he's, he's, he's done most of the song arrangements for me on my albums. But he hadn't composed anything. And when, he, when I asked him to compose something, I know he's a great film composer and arranger. And uh, he, we call him the John Williams of Cuba. Because he really is very talented. And uh, now he's living in Madrid and he's hoping to, to have a big breakthrough. And with this bolero, he really, it was really important for him to use the influences that have classically influenced him. And Mahler is really one of his top influences. And just the way he used the, the calling and the echoing effect, especially at the end, there's a little cadenza and a, a call. And you can almost hear the horn across the, the lake answering and I was just just transported back to the, the Havana of the 40s, where Havana was, was full of life and rich and sparkling, and all the American stars went there. And uh, so for me, it's a mixture of film music and Gustav Mahler, but uh, Jorge would be very proud to know that people have heard that influence. It's also perfectly written for the horn. It's really, he couldn't have written better for what I can do on the horn, my sort of sound. It's really a dream to play. It does sound wonderfully written for the horn. And there's the moment, I think it's middle towards uh, maybe two-thirds of the way through, something like that, where I get this impression where so far it's been you and the orchestra, very close relationship together, you know, they're playing together. But then all of a sudden it sounds like actually these two characters, you you and the orchestra, um, as if depicting lovers separated, you know, worlds apart by land or sea, and they're thinking of each other but they're not together. I get that, that kind of sense in the, in the music with that one. That's beautiful. I really think that's the sort of alpine influence of Mahler mm. that Jorge brought in there. Yes. And also he plays the piano himself in this. And all the composers did. In the, in the numbers with piano, in the first one, the Tamarindo Scherzon, Pepe Gavilondo is playing the piano. And in this one, Jorge is playing the piano. And if you listen really closely, the dialogue that he is, he is having with me uh, is just incredible. And when I looked at his part, there's nothing written down. You know, to to bring this music into publishing state, he had to actually sit down and listen to the recording and write down what he played because for the recording, he just made it up on the spot. Oh, so you really make us fall in love with this fourth dance. We're in a trance by the end. 
but then we're Good. woken up <laughs> yes. by the next dance. Perfectly, Sarah Cha, another just fun title. This one by Unietta Lambita and Ernesto Oliva. Now, the lights are back up. We have this fun title, Sarah Cha. And the writing for the horn is very, very difficult. It almost sounds like for moments they were just together and thought, you know, just give Sarah the flute part and then we'll just move on. Oh my goodness, you are so right. When I got the music, I was like, guys, you're kidding me. This was the last movement to be composed because the, move, the, the suite was originally five movements. And we'll get to the, to the final movement, the Changui, in a minute. But the problem was when I, when I got that, the music for that, I realized this might be way too difficult for anyone to play outside of Cuba. Not just my part, but the orchestra part. I sent it to my brother, who's a conductor living in the States. And I said, could your orchestra play this? And he was like, forget it. None of us can play this because it's all on the offbeat. So I thought, okay, I need another piece, another movement so that you can have an alternative ending if people don't want to play the Changui. Of course, we wanted to play them all. And this is how the Saracha was born. It was like pretty much a last minute thing. So I didn't have a chance to see the music until it was like almost a recording. And then I got the music. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It was exactly that. I said, is this the flute part? No, no, it's the horn part. But this one seems to be making the rounds. People are loving it. It's a mixture of cha-cha-cha and mambo, a very fast mambo. And they've also uh, written very well. They wrote this together because of the time that they had to do it in. And uh, it's it was very interesting to see what they came up with. And it's a lot of fun to play and a lot of fun to dance. And there's singing in this one, too. Is that you and the orchestra um, singing the chorus part? Yes. Now, in a, in a typical Cuban cha-cha-cha, there's often a, a coro, a, a chorus, and we are singing. We had a competition in the orchestra. Uh, who was going to write this little coro? And, uh, and the thing, the Cubans make them up as they go along. I mean, the whole Buena Vista Social Club were guys just making up the lyrics as they went along. You have the you know, a chorus, and then you have someone just telling a story. And, uh, and, and so they all were coming up with these crazy ideas. And, and the one that won is the one, of course, you hear. And they say, El corno de Sara uh, sonando en toda la Habana. So the horn of Sarah is sounding all over the rooftops of Havana. And there's El corno de Sara, the horn of Sarah, bailando con el cha-cha-cha. So the horn is dancing with this cha-cha-cha. And that's the one that won. And they won the chocolate. I, uh, that's that's incredible. I mean, what's also I think is just so notable is that we're on the fifth dance and it doesn't sound like we've had music written by, you know, all of these different composers. It really does sound like this flows and it's very cohesive in all these um, in every way possible, really. And I think for this one, the cha-cha-cha and mambo, probably the most familiar sounding dances to Americans. And if you started eating dinner at the beginning of this entire piece i think at this point you probably start getting up and moving around this is uh, exactly it's hard not my, to move around at this one. <laughs> exactly my intention and what we've done for german tv is we made a film as well uh, about it and we filmed each dance in the city it originated in oh wow so we filmed the danson in the in the in matanzas which is where it came from um we filmed the 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 saracha up on the rooftops over havana and we had to repeat it a hundred times until the cameras were happy. But uh, we learned a lot about dancing it as well, because they were just like, well, play it. But also then there were some takes where we just had to dance to it. And uh, trying to keep up with the Cubans was, was, was a good challenge. Going to that final dance that you mentioned, a Changui, this one, Aikome Un Changui Pasari by Ernesto Oliva. This one, as you said, it's it sounds like it was hard to put together. A lot of starting on the offbeat here. <laughs> 
Yes, uh, aikomai is a phrase that the Guantanamerans use when they see people working in the fields. They say aikomai, it's sort of high, high girl or high auntie or it's sort of like high, even high comrade uh, is what it used to be, but people don't use that so much anymore. And uh, Changui Parasari, Sari is my nickname in Cuba. So uh, that's that was nice that he put that in. And the Changui, when I got the MP3 before I received the music, and so this this starts very simply. It says bump, bada bump, 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 and I thought easy one, two, one, two, and then then the percussion come in after about sixteen bars, and it's like a hiccup. It's like all of a sudden you realize it's not it's not bump, bada bump, but it's um, bump, 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 bump. It's all on the offbeat. And I thought, well, how does the horn fit in here? And then I got the music, and I've never seen so many offbeats in my life. Now, horns are used to playing the offbeats in, like, Strauss waltzes or something, but <laughs> but never in something like this. And this, I must say, even though the notes are not so hard to play, the challenge of playing an entire piece on the offbeat, this was huge. This took me a long time to get ready. And this was another one I had to learn to dance before I could play it, because dancing the changui is like dancing salsa with hiccups. Uh, <laughs> it's yes. always like not quite where you expect it to be. The entire work is just incredible, and I think it's, we don't have anything like it, and hopefully this will inspire more works like this to, um, to be written. It, nothing would make me happier to know that future generations discover Cuban music and learn to love it like I do. But I'm hoping also that the, the next generation of, of Cuban composers will see what's possible. We'll see we've, we've worked out a system with the percussion, which is, makes it easier to, to write it down. So it's, it's been a whole education project as well. And uh, so I, I really hope that would be wonderful to have more pieces, not only for French horn, for, for any instrument, which combine this, this classical training that, that we've had, but in a way of writing it down so that it sounds like something authentic. And we'll have much more on Mozarty Mambo right after this. And the best part is, the album's not over. We still have several more works here, like the, the next horn concerto, the horn concerto number one by Mozart, which I think he wrote in his last year, um, 1791. I love how the Cuban dances lead into this because this concerto, it's not long, it's less than 10 minutes, it's two movements, but you get a completely different perspective when you listen to it after listening to everything else in full. And I think it's also an example of, you know, again, where this album also um, shines because you hear it so differently. It sounds like the, if you can't dance it, you can't play it, wasn't just for the Cuban aspect of all this, but it, it also seems like it fits right in with the Mozart too. I absolutely agree because uh, Mozart has this dance element in his music and it's really noticeable in the horn concertos, especially in the last movements. And I mean, we put number one there because we weren't, there was nowhere else to put it really. <laughs> and, but it, it's nice that it's there because, you know, I, I play in the Berlin Philharmonic, that's my job. And I'm doing all this because I'm a horn player. I'm a classically trained horn player. So it's very important to me to go back to my roots. It's great to learn new stuff, but I have to go back to my roots and say, look, this is what I do. And to have a accompaniment or a partner in my Mozart, like the Havana Lyceum Orchestra, that gave it that very special dance element and uh, and I, I think it fits in there well I mean I hope it did it's the only place we could put it <laughs> it absolutely fits well and then we have two works right after the Mozart which I mean it really it feels like it's tying the whole album together we're starting to wind down here um, starting with the song uh, Viente Años by Maria Teresa Vera arranged by Jorge Aragon 
This is with um, uh, Carlos Colunga singing, and it's there's almost not much to say. This speaks for itself. It's beautiful. I imagine it, it almost probably felt like a lesson for you um, being there and hearing Carlos sing. ¿Qué te importa? ¿Qué te ame? Carlos is also from the Buena Vista Social Club. He was quite young when that came out. He was a backing singer, but, you know, he, he sat in on all the sessions with Ibrahim Ferrer, and uh, he has such a fantastic human voice. When I said, who should we get to sing, and I'd like someone from Buena Vista, they said, well, you haven't got a lot to choose from. <laughs> there are not many left. And, uh, and, and then Carlos was recommended because he also sings perfectly in tune. Now, singing in tune is not necessarily something that people do that much because it's nice to pull tunes around. But if you're going to play it with a classical orchestra and a, class, and a classical horn player, you have to sing also in tune. And Carlos turned up, we'd rehearsed it, and it's a beautiful arrangement by Jorge Aragon. And Carlos turned up, and he's a tenor, so he wasn't going to sing it very often. And as you heard on the recording, it's quite high with really an amazing note at the end. So he said, let's run it once and then record it. We ran it, but we kept the microphones going, of course. And we were in tears afterwards. We were literally in tears. There was a silence. After, and I think we've used a lot of that first take because there was a silence. It was so beautiful. His voice is so beautiful, and the words are so incredibly sad. It just was, was one of those goosebump moments you'll, you'll never forget. And yes, I learned a lot about how to, to play this sort of uh, bolero song. Um, it's, it's not easy. It really is not easy following an act like that. The next one, um, a bodeguero, this one is a lot of fun because there's lyrics here that weren't written for you, but kind of turned into an inside joke, it sounds like. <laughs> totally. Toma chocolate, paga lo que debes, which means take some chocolate and pay for it, pay what you owe. Now, the joke is that there's no chocolate in Cuba right now. It's not actually a joke. It's very sad, but we made it into a joke. So it said to, they, they sang in the rehearsals, uh, take the chocolate if you can, pay for it if you can. Because uh, if there is any chocolate, it would be on the black market and very expensive. So that was our coro that we sang there. We did this one purely out of selfish reasons because I love the song so much. It's one of the most famous songs to come out of Cuba. I love it and I just wanted to play it on the horn. <laughs> so I asked Jorge Aragon to do this one for me and he did and it's beautiful. It works. It's beautiful. And you said you brought lots of chocolate over as well during this time. Was there a particular popular favorite for them? They love M&Ms. They love Toblerone. They love Nutella. Do you have Nutella in America? Oh, of course. They, they love Nutella. And um, things are really tough in Cuba right now, especially after the pandemic. And the only way you can get yummy things like that is on the black market. And uh, and so I would I brought six suitcases when I came with me, and most of them were full of, of treats for the orchestra wow. during the recording. It's really, really difficult times right now. Uh, it, it sounds like it, and it's wonderful you were able to to do that. These are two beautiful things to end the album with. In fact, it sounds like to me the album could end right here. We'd all be happy. You know, it could have, but I wanted just a little nod to the first album. Mm -hmm. And I thought, thought that the audience, if they've listened that far, they deserve a little encore, which is yes. how our final piece. It's a tiny little thing. It's three minutes long. 
It's an aria, which everyone knows very well from Mozart's Magic Flute. And I just wanted to make people smile with this. Did you smile? I'll tell you, Sarah, when Camille, the publicist that、um, got us in touch, when she reached out to me and sent over the music, I looked down and I saw that. That's the first thing I played. <laughs> I, I thought, okay, I'll listen to everything, but I have to, I have to hear what this is first because you know, I just see pa, 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 you know, Mozart、um, with baritone sax、um, in here as well. So I played it immediately and I was smiling. I think I even wrote to、um, Camille, the publicist, saying, I listened to that pa, pa, pa first. I love it. <laughs> I, I just I, I couldn't get over it. No, it's very special. And it just, I, I was talking to Pepe, the conductor, about what piece we could do a mix of because we did so many mixes in the, in the first album. I just wanted a tiny little encore just to say, look, that Mozart might have done this. And, and he, he was the one that came up with the Papagena, Papageno aria from the Magic Flute from the second act. And then I thought, okay, if I'm going to be Papagena, of course, who do I want to be my Papageno? What's going to make them laugh? And Juniette Lombida is the most talented saxophone player. And I just thought, but normal saxophone isn't enough. He has to be a big, full blooded baritone saxophone. And those are the first notes you hear from Papagena. And everyone I know has just burst out laughing. Oh. It's great. I mean, I also love this is going back to your last album because everything is in the so far is with the Havana Lyceum Orchestra. This has a separate name to it, the ensemble. Sarabanda? Yeah, it's yet Sarah again. Sorry. Sarabanda is,、uh, is my salsa band. And that's formed out of purely selfish reasons because the salsa band plays differently to an orchestra. They have a rhythm section. These three players are incredible and they, they have this drive that a, a classical orchestra doesn't have. Even in, even in Cuba, the, the, the percussion h a v e to adapt to what the strings are playing or maybe play a bit later because the winds are breathing. But my salsa band is a seven piece ensemble with、uh, piano, three percussion, bass, saxophone, and horn. And the boss of that is Uniet. He's the absolute boss of the, of the band. I'm just the you know, backing singer. And,、uh, and we, we did a, a very nice recording for the, for the first album, and I really wanted them to be on the second album as well. And,、uh, and they had a lot of fun recording this because most of them hadn't heard the、uh, Magic Flute at all yet. And they were like, oh, this is nice. You know, who wrote this? Mozart. Oh, nice. And it's turned into a bit of a, of a, of a contra dance. And yeah, it, it, it does what Mozart intended. It starts peacefully and gets faster and finishes in a flourish. But the, the arranger is a Cuban, Edgar Olivero, and he lives in Spain now. But he, he's just so genius with what he does. I, just, I said, listen, what about this Ari? He's like, no problem. Two days later, the pa 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 appeared. It's so wonderful. It reminds me of like back in the day, you had a CD, you know, you're growing up, you, let it, you just put in the CD player and you let it play, and then you just kind of forget about it, but it's still playing. And then there's that hidden track、exactly. after four minutes of silence. That's what <laughs> this is the reward for us. I was thinking of doing that. It's funny you said that. I was thinking of doing that, but then I thought, actually, these days, nobody really listens to a, a CD that much、mm-hmm. anymore. And, and if you do a bonus track, On a CD, it would come out and the streaming platforms with all that silence before it. So、yeah. we decided not to do that. But that's the intention. It's supposed to be just a little encore, a little nudge in the ribs to say, here's the band. This is what we have to say. We love Mozart. And this is what he might have done if he'd recorded the magic flute in Havana. And if you asked me a couple weeks ago, how many different clever names and words you can come up with in music using the name Sarah, I probably would have <laughs> said, oh, probably about none.
right? No, yeah, but Sarabanda. That's perfect. I mean, come on, oh. that was the obvious one. And what I like about playing with the salsa band is, I mean, they they take no prisoners. They just mm-hmm. go, and I have to I have to play in a completely different way with them and with the saxophone than I do when we perform it. I play sideways so that my bell is pointing out at the audience, and I have mm-hmm. to play completely on the beat, if not before the beat, which is very unusual for a horn player. And um, and it, it's it's really completely selfish reasons, but uh, it's it's so much fun to play with them, and uh, it's just a, it's just a different color. And I'm hoping we're gonna make loads of pieces for the Sarabanda. But they they had never done things like dynamics before. Uh, the, in their salsa band, if salsa bands start loud and finish louder, and they start at one tempo, and either they finish at the same tempo or they go faster. So to get them to do like echoes and something's piano and accompany was also something new for them and they had a lot of fun doing it. Now, the, the Papa Pa we recorded at three in the morning because we'd had a thunderstorm before and the, the church flooded and one of the percussionists couldn't get there because he was on a motorbike. So we just sort of hung around and we had a jam session. So by the time he got there, everyone was pretty tired, but uh, it, it turned out all right. It turned out all right for sure. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about you or this album? We have a a fund to buy musicians' instruments. I didn't really go into that. But if people want to help support us, then all this project is to support my Cuban musicians. And no one's making any money out of it at all. We're just um, being able to buy new instruments for them and with sheet music and also helping some of them study abroad. So it's turned into this big project. And if anyone's interested in helping us out, we'd be more than grateful. And we'll put more information on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org, including where to listen. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me and talking all about Mozart Imambo. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening to it and thank you for loving it because I can really tell it with your questions and, and how you've listened to it that it's made you happy as well. So mission accomplished. That makes me very proud. And what an album, and one with melodies that you'll be humming or singing for days, if not weeks. Thank you for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. If you have any episode ideas or questions, please send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.